Good evening. You are listening to a Radiligen Broadcasting Premier Podcast TV party tonight. I'm your host, the mandated reporter, and frankly, I'm mortified, Mr. Mark Radilage. And tonight, our favorite show is Ted Lasso, Season 2, still brought to you by the good people at uh, uh, Ruby Ruby's Tuna Incorporated, Doozer, Universal Television, Warner Brothers Television Studios, and of course, it is available on Apple TV+. Plus. Uh, joining me as he did for Season 1 is Ted Lasso Booster. And number one fan, Gavin Napier. How do you do, sir? I'm doing well, Mark. How are you this evening? I'm very well. I just finished watching uh, the steroid trial on Dark Side of the Ring. Have you been keeping up with it? I have not. The uh, The only Dark Side that I've watched has been the uh, Benoit episodes. Really? You haven't yes. watched, um, never went back and watched season one or the rest of season two? No it really is shocking how little television I watch these days. I get that. I can certainly uh, sympathize and understand. Uh, I will tell you, and then we can get into the subject at hand. This is like the lowest rated season of Dark Side of the Ring ever, apparently. It's not doing well. Um, and Pat and I will talk more about it while we think that's the case next week. Uh, as tonight was the season finale. All right. Um, switching gears, getting into Ted Lasso here. So as promised, uh, Gavin pitched me this. He said, hey, I really like Ted Lasso. I think you should watch it. It's a very wholesome, very lovely show, despite some salty language. Um, and I think you'd really enjoy it if you saw it. And the first season, as we talked about, kind of recapping, I it was a little bit of a slow start. I had a hard, little bit of a hard time getting into it. Second half, it started to pick up. And I'm like, oh, OK, I get this now. And then Ted Lasso had some um some really great <clears throat> lines um lines at the end i think it was one of them was like be curious oh gosh what how's it go again not judgmental right be curious not judgmental which i like i did a TikTok. i was all over that one i was like <laughs> that became my mantra for the day so i was excited about season two and i have to say season two started off kind of the same way where i wasn't particularly connected with what was going on i was just kind of like watching it because i knew we were going to talk about it but it was like very passively at about episode four or five, I got hooked. And then that whole back half of the season, there are parts where I am ugly crying, like Coco crying. Just <laughs> so um, just kind of your general impressions. What did you think of season two? Uh, I, I probably got hooked a little earlier than you did. Um, probably episode three for me. Mm -hmm. Um but a big part of what hooked me was the fact that they did telegraph some of the conflict that you would get throughout the season and wanting to see how quickly that progressed and if there would be any curveballs for it. And some things were pretty straightforward. Um, mm. They did manage to work in a couple of really nice curves that, that I think probably threw everyone off balance, if we're being honest. Mm -hmm. um I, I don't think many people saw the the romantic aspect of the the show 
coming this year, uh, especially since they sort of nudged you in a completely different direction uh, until about midway through the season. So yeah, <clears throat> I, I thought that it was good. I do think that with the exception of a few moments in each episode over, over the last really half of the season, the show was not a comedy. Yeah. This wasn't nearly as funny as, as like slapsticky as the first season. Mm-hmm. And the first season not, isn't tremendously slapsticky. It's not like, you know, John Ritter is like falling down a set of stairs or anything, or, you know, Mr. Roper walking in, Oh, <laughs> you know, that sort of thing. The, the tone of the second half of the season kind mm-hmm. of struck me. Melodrama. Um, yeah, that's a good word for it. I was thinking of a show to compare it to. Mm-hmm. Um, I never finished the show, but maybe the first couple seasons of Parenthood with, with Peter okay. Krause and Dak Shepard and, and that crew. Because there thinking... were some very lighthearted moments, but, mm-hmm. but by and large, it, it was meant to push some emotional buttons. I was thinking, um, I think, what, what was it called? Um, sports show? Oh, gosh. Um, sports Night? Sports Night, yeah. And not Peter Krause, Josh Charles. Yeah, Rocky and I see the handful of episodes I saw of that, uh, which is one I would love to actually watch the entire season of. Oh, it's fantastic. Uh, it is. It was, it was one, I, I wish I had watched the whole thing when it initially premiered. Um, it's really one of the great shows in television history. But it had Ted Lasso, I would say for the majority of season two had kind of a sports night feel to it without the snappy dialogue. Yeah, that's fair. And I mean, really you're not going to get a TV show from anyone other than Aaron Sorkin that has that type of dialogue. Sure. Uh, And sports night was unique in that that was Sorkin's real foray into television comedy. Mm -hmm. Um, I I love sports night. I own the entire series on DVD. It's one of the few hard copy DVDs that I've held on to. Um, so anytime you want to watch through that and do a review, you let me know. Uh, I will put that on the list. Um, but, uh, yeah, the, the comparison for me, and then we can get into the episodes is sports night was funny at times because of the situations that occurred or interactions between the characters. It wasn't necessarily because people were cracking wise. It wasn't like a day or WKRP in Cincinnati. Right. You know, where every other line is, 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 a, is a joke, you know, um, where they're like waiting for the laugh track. And the thing with like Ted Lasso is there are funny moments, uh, in the show, but it, it's a lot of heady drama. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we'll get into it as we break down each episode, but like the stuff about Ted, the reveals about Ted and his dad. And I don't, I don't want to telegraph it too much, but when Ted starts to talk about, his abandonment issues. Mm-hmm. I don't have necessarily abandonment issues. I have two. I have a set of parents that are still together. Um, things like that. Um, I am am happily married with kids and all of that. But I don't know, and I don't know why. Maybe because I'm very empathic, especially with my because of my profession. But it hit me hard. Mm-hmm. Like when he started to talk about everyone left me, and then you left, and he's talking about the therapist. I and we'll get into this in a little bit. I really, that's when I about lost it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and Ted's not alone in that journey. Um, mm-hmm. One of the things that they continued as a strength from season one is every character matters. There, yeah. there is development for every member of the cast. Um, whether it's Rebecca Waddingham, whether it's Ted and, and Jason Sudeikis mm-hmm. or, or Keely and the massive throbbing vein in the middle of her forehead. <laughs> um, 
even even uh, even though it seems like it's forgotten and and honestly it kind of is forgotten or at least it was for me as a viewer throughout mm-hmm. the majority of the season but but even Danny Rojas mm-hmm. gets gets some development over the course of the entire season um so th- I think they did a very good job of continuing to develop the entire cast mm-hmm. um and they they did let each character deal with some emotional stuff. I want to start off with, and then we'll jump right into episode one. I think the thing that threw me off was it, it wasn't immediately clear what the central conflict was going to be. And mm-hmm. so much of season one is based around that major league concept of, I am here to purposely kneecap the team out of, you know, my hatred for my husband is what, mm-hmm. the, you know, the, the character says. And it doesn't get resolved to the end. And, you know, and of course, Ted forgives her and, you know, now we're into she's now, you know, because of her and the decisions that she's made and some and how that last game goes, the team has been relegated. And so this season, it's about rebuilding this team and sort of um, um, uh, atoning for that mistake that she made. And I was like, OK, but then what is this show without any of that? You know, it, what is this show if, she, if you don't have a villain undermining the team every step of the way? What's this about then? You know, is it just about Ted? Like like and is there enough internal conflict with Ted or, or external conflict that he causes with others to make this show interesting? And at first I didn't see it. Like the first, like I said, three episodes or so I was like, I don't know what, what we're doing here, but this is kind of boring. Um, um, and then I, I was shown, I was shown very much. <laughs> Go ahead. If there was something you wanted to add, otherwise we'll just run right into the plot synopsis. No, we can head into the plot synopsis. I think that's a, a pretty good layout of, of how the season began and some of the misgivings that I'm sure we weren't alone in that. Um, <laughs> as we see, there there are multiple villains throughout. And, yes. and, and we it feels kind of like the, uh, the Unbreakable from M. Night Shyamalan. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we get to see the origin story of a villain. Yeah. yeah. That's right. That's right. All right, let's get there because that's the last thing we're gonna we're gonna ha- have to talk about. All right, episode one, goodbye Earl, which debuted July twenty third, twenty twenty one. The episode starts mid season as Richmond has drawn their last seven games. Danny prepares to get a game winning penalty, but he accidentally kills Richmond's greyhound mascot Earl. We're start- we're starting with the yucks early here as he jumps in front of the goal to attack a bird. Danny is guilt ridden and loses his football skills. Meanwhile. A newly retired Roy is coaching an under nine girls football team in dating Keeley. They go on a double date with Rebecca's new boyfriend, John, but Roy convinces Rebecca after the date that she deserves someone better. To help Danny recover from his yips, Richmond hires sports psychologist Sharon Fieldstone, whose stem and whose stern and disciplined attitude clashes with Ted. Rebecca breaks things off with John. After meeting with Sharon, Danny regains his enthusiasm for football and converts a corner kick goal in practice. As a result, more players begin to request sessions with Sharon. With, <clears throat> with his yoga group, Roy watches Lust Conquers All, uh, which and that Jamie is revealed to be a contestant on. Roy is livid with his group for liking Jamie. So I'll just start off here and I'll pitch it to you. Uh, I immediately thought Sharon was going to be the villain of this season. That I was like, okay, she's working for the husband. There's she's there to she's there to undermine the team now. <laughs> Her role as therapist is to cause harm to this team. That's what this is going to be about. I 
could not have been more wrong, obviously. <laughs> but that's that that was the impression that I got. And I do, and I don't know if it's this episode or another one. Um, it's one of the funniest gags of the of the show is she's sitting, she's watching Ted practice. Uh, uh, she's watching Ted coach and she's watching the team practice and she's sitting in one of the last uh, benches of that particular section and Ted says something to Beard about I feel like she's getting closer every time I turn around she hasn't really moved and then she does and she's ill and he turns around again and he's like oh come on I laughed hard at that it was actually one of the biggest belly laughs out of me of the whole season but episode one your thoughts I enjoyed it I enjoyed the the absurdity of Danny Rojas killing a dog. Um, it, it, because he is such an exuberant, over the top, joyful character. So yeah. to, to see some misfortune befall him immediately in season two was such a departure from where he was in season one. Um, and, and I don't think I had quite the same impression of the therapist as you did. I think that when she popped up to steal a term from Dungeons and Dragons, I saw her more of a chaotic neutral. Yeah, that that she was just basically there to send everything spiraling out of control, which mm -hmm. I was just as wrong as you were. That mm -hmm. that was not her role in any way, shape, form, fashion. Um, <clears throat> much like the first season, there's not a tremendous amount of depth to the first episode. It really does set the table for. Mm -hmm. uh, what comes in the rest of the season, planting little seeds that if you don't pay a lot of attention. You can overlook them. And really on first watch, there's no reason for them to reach out and grab you. But right. as you progress through the season and then you revisit episode one, you go, Oh, yeah. Oh, oh. so they, the, again, the strength of the writing team is made evident when you go back and look at episode one, because even going through the plot synopsis, you hit on some things that I had completely forgotten about while watching the second season. Mm. Um, so kudos to the writing team for planting those seeds and, and giving you a reason to pay attention going forward, um, but not a tremendous amount of depth in episode one upon first viewing, but it's something that we'll go back and reference, I'm sure, multiple times as we look at other episodes. I'm going to make a reference and you're going to giggle because this is totally my gimmick. But if you've ever sat through an entire watch of The Wire, mm. hang on. Let me do it. Let me do it. Jesus, what the fuck did I do? You happy now, bitch? <laughs> um, <laughs> I, got, I got my drop in there. Um, the first season of The Wire gives you everything you need to know about the rest of the season, mm -hmm. and it seems like nothing happened. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, almost every, especially that first season, uh, because it, it takes so long to actually get to the detail, and then and then to cross into what we really need is a wiretap. Mm -hmm. um, but everything you need to know about that show happens in the first episode and right and and that's what you're saying about this one and, and you're right i didn't notice it at first i had to go back and reflect on it um because i remember thinking gosh what are gavin and i going to talk about it just seems like they're just a day in the life of these characters who's who have already resolved all of their issues mm -hmm. or have separated in such a way that they're no longer interacting with one another right. causing conflict so i'm like now this just feels like reality this feels like very boring reality television but then I go back and I'm like, oh, that's why. Okay. Mm. 
And I will say very quickly before we move on to episode mm-hmm. two, because I don't want to forget. I know Ted Lasso absolutely cleaned up at the Emmys this year. Yep. Um, they, they won virtually everything they could win. <laughs> they won them all, so. But I will say that beginning in episode one and throughout the entire arc of season two, uh, I really feel like, and I don't know his name, but the gentleman that plays Roy Kent mm-hmm. just makes an outstanding push for Best Supporting Actor at next year's Emmys. He he really was a standout part of this season for me. I have to say, him and his relationship with Keeley is probably outside of the emotional stuff, my favorite thing, like, there's always something about a television show, like, oh, I can't wait till we get back to that character, or we right. can't wait to get back to that that storyline, and then there's others where I'm like, mm, I don't care, can we move past this already? Every time Keely and Roy, or especially just Roy, and his journey in season two, anytime they were dealing with that, I was rapt attention, mm-hmm. like, that That to me was the best stuff. Yeah. Uh, episode two, Lavender. Jamie is voted out of Lust Conquers All, leading him to unsuccessfully attempt to return to Manchester City. Higgins hires Sharon for the rest of the season. Jamie approaches Ted to rejoin Richmond and reveals that he left Manchester City to anger his overbearing father. Ted politely declines his request to rejoin. When a picture of their conversation goes viral, Sam believes Jamie, who repeatedly bullied him, is returning and angrily storms off during practice. Ted assures Sam that he said no. After the girls' team, Roy coaches lose their championship. Keely convinces Roy to try out a pundit job at Sky Sports. Despite his heavy cursing drawing the disapproval of the other pundits, Roy's commentary is positively received by the public, and the network asks him to return. Wanting to give Jamie a second chance, Ted reconsiders adding him to the team and polls the Diamond Dogs on their opinions. Higgins votes for the addition, while Beard and Nate vote against it. Roy admits to Keely that he enjoyed being on the show, Jamie rejoins Richmond to the players' confusion. Yeah, not just the players, mine too. Like, I, I feel like there's a real missing in the film where where Ted has this epiphany that maybe it is a good idea to, to have Jamie come back. I mean, ultimately it was, and Jamie's story this season, there's gonna be a line later on where he has an interaction with Roy. And he was like, and you know, and he and he really has a line that that, that goes after my own heart, because I've totally been there. It's like, I'm doing and saying all the right things. What the fuck? Yeah, <laughs> you know, Jamie is so much more likable this season. Mm-hmm. But so, like, ultimately, it was a good decision. But even I, as a viewer, was like, "How did we get from no thank you, Jamie, to yes, Jamie? Where was the middle part where where Ted turns around? He just kind of does it." Yeah, it was it was a little abrupt. Mm-hmm. Um, that being said, you know, rewinding to the final episode of season one you know ted obviously cares for jamie um Mm -hmm. he's become something of a father figure to him uh, in in lieu of jamie's father who we get to see quite a bit of in this season Mm -hmm. um so i i don't think it's a a terrible gap in logic i just feel like the execution left a little to be desired uh because jamie rejoining the team makes sense from a plot progression standpoint from a character standpoint for ted from a character standpoint for jamie Mm -hmm. and even for you know the rest of the team because we do see that the dynamic that ted has built is it's a group of people that give second chances forgive one another so it it all makes sense from a a storytelling standpoint it just it's maybe the one flaw that the season had in terms of storytelling execution. Yeah, that that's all I'm saying. Like I don't I don't disagree with the logic of it. 
I, I like I said, I, it just feels like you ever be watching TV and and you fall asleep and you wake up and like you can more or less figure out what's happened later on in the movie, but you but you missed an entire scene that would have yep. told you. I feel like that scene's missing, and, and it's fine. Like you know, you can there's there's enough context that you can just kind of go with it. But for a show as well written as this one, it seemed I would have liked to have seen a scene that changes Ted's mind or at least a conversation between him and Beard because here's my thought on this. I feel like Ted's coaching style is to create create dynamism within the team by adding um, bits of chaos. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know what the word I'm looking for is, but like basically th- things, surprises, <clears throat> you know, um, agents of chaos within, within the team dynamic because then people have to react differently and those reactions create opportunities it's it's something that i call the sandpaper theory is you make people uncomfortable because sandpaper is rough Uh, and it requires friction (laughs) and it's difficult Mm -hmm. but the end result is a polished finished usable product yes and so Ted creates those sandpaper moments by doing things that throw everyone off guard. And in the end, it all comes together nicely. Um, Roy produced some of the my, my laugh out loud moments every time he was on the panel, including yeah. when he finally quits. <laughs> when he quits yes. is the best. Yes. Um, uh, that episode is probably my favorite of the season. Mm-hmm. But Roy, I love Roy's like just sort of angry stoicism. You know, and, and so like, <laughs> yeah, the growling oh, that all worked, <laughs> and with the kids, it's also cute as hell. Yes, you know, and just the Roy, you you can't call the other team fuckers. You, you just can't. <laughs> Things like that, you know. I I got a kick out of. So I was very much enjoying all that stuff. Yeah, I, I, again, he he's really a standout part of the season. Mm-hmm. I'll be shocked if he doesn't win best supporting actor in a comedy at the Emmys next year. Um, and where his story ends, and we'll get there, it makes me very interested to see what, what comes with season three. So, uh, but yeah, the, this was a, a fine episode. We we get a little bit more progression with uh, Jamie and Roy and Ted and, and so on. But again, not a and tremendous Sam. amount of depth. Sam went from really being kind of a background character to a real featured character. Mm-hmm. And certainly as we, you know, when his relationship is revealed later on, that certainly becomes the case. But I mean, like they really, it was almost like they looked around and say, who else we got on this cast? that's really good. that people will find likable. Hey, let's mm-hmm. do something with Sam. Cause Sam yeah. gets so much of this, of this season. So let's get to it. Episode three, Jamie attempts to apologize to Richmond players for his past actions and bullying, but the team is unmoved as they would be. Rebecca's teenage goddaughter Nora comes to visit while her mother Sassy attends a conference. If I have a third child and it's a da- and it's a daughter, I'm naming her Sassy. Um, after watching Rebecca's futile efforts to entertain Nora with childish activities, Roy advises Rebecca to invite Nora to spend the day with her at work. Healy organizes a photo shoot with Sam for Dubai Air, the team's sponsor, but Sam's father informs him that Dubai Air's corporate owner. Is an oil company polluting his home country, Nigeria. Keely directs Jamie to talk to Sharon for help in getting back in the team's good graces. Sam withdraws from Dubai Air's ad campaign, leading the company to demand that Rebecca fire Sam. Nora convinces Rebecca to hold firm, ultimately calling the company's bluff. 
During Richmond's next game, Sam, Isaac, and Winchester cover their uniforms, Dubai Air's logos, with black tape in protest. Jamie leads the rest of the players to follow suit. In the post-game press conference, Ted allows Sam to speak on Dubai Air's malfeasance and the Nigerian government's corruption. Despite losing the game, the team celebrates breaking their draw streak. Jamie toasts Sam for his courage, and the two reconcile. This was a great episode. It really was. Um, the actor who plays Sam, I'll get his name in a second um, while you're talking, but the actor who plays Sam is utterly fantastic here. And, and, and you didn't really notice him in the first season. This one, he blossoms, and he's, other than Roy, he's like my favorite character in, the six, in, this, in season two. He has a genuineness to him that is difficult for actors to obtain. Um, it's one thing for an actor to play a likable character. It's something else for them to play a genuine character. And with Sam, you don't feel like you're watching an actor. You feel like you're watching a person. And I think that comes through um, in how he interacts with other people how he handled himself at the press conference. His facial expressions are absolutely fantastic. I know you and I, uh, we, we watch wrestling, and one of the things that they focus on in wrestling when you're learning to wrestle is your facials. You know, how do you communicate with the audience non-verbally? And the, the little things that Sam does uh, with his facial expressions, the way his eyes light up, his smile, his, his degree of smile, um, you can tell when he is pensive and contemplative, and he does a lot of nonverbal expression. And I think that it lends a lot of weight to his character that could very easily be written off as a surface level character. Oh, this guy's protesting what's going on in his home country. You know, they did the cool thing mm -hmm. with the tape, which was a really nice moment. Like, it's a great way to, to incorporate Jamie back into the team, get them into the good graces. Um, but I think Sam, the actor that plays him, is just a tremendous job uh, in this episode and for the rest of the season. When I was in college, one of the uh, drama assignments we had to do was a monologue. And, you know, there have been some great dramatic monologues throughout the history of film and stage and television. But I have to say, like, his is a very understated one. Like, his, his mm -hmm. speech to the press, it's very understated and it's kind of short but it's one of the best monologues I've ever heard. Mm -hmm. Like it's the way, the way it's delivered. So it's very self-assured and very like straight to the point. And he doesn't need to be, you know, Sam Kinison at the pulpit or anything like that. He's just right. like, these are the things that are happening and they're wrong. And I am utterly convinced of this and cannot be told otherwise Yeah, to with it. And it's great. Like it, it, it's, I think, I think that level of conviction is rare to see in public. Yeah, I, I would agree. Episode four. We let's go back to where we were. Um, Carol of the bells. Oh yeah, this is the this is the Christmas episode, <laughs> and this really turned it around for me. This is where things start get, start to cook. Uh, it's Christmas time in Hollis, Queens, in Richmond. Uh, Roy and Keeley's attempt at a romantic, sexy Christmas is derailed by Roy's niece Phoebe visiting, feeling insecure after a boy at school teased her for bad breath. Higgins and his family host a Christmas party for the players from overseas. Danny, Sam, and many other players come to the party, bringing their own Christmas traditions with them, pleasantly surprising Higgins and his wife. Meanwhile, Ted plans to spend Christmas video, uh, video calling Henry uh, and Michelle, but the expensive drone Ted buys his son causes Henry to run off to play with it. A dejected Ted starts drinking, but Rebecca, who suspected Ted would feel alone in his first post-divorce Christmas, 
recruited him to do some last-minute gift-giving to underprivileged children in Richmond. Roy and Keeley attempt to find a dentist on Christmas to determine the source of Phoebe's halitosis. Discovering the new antihistamine Phoebe takes for her cat allergy is the cause. The episode ends with Ken and Rebecca joining the party at Higgins's performing Christmas Baby Please Come Home on the road outside. I loved, loved, loved this episode. This was fan-fucking-tastic. And even little things like that, like poor Phoebe and, you know, and Roy's like, I've lived in, like, men's locker rooms for the better part of my life. Nothing can bother me. And and Roy, in his understated way, he gives it a sniff and his eyes start to flutter and he goes, I think you might be dying. And that... <laughs> And we comment so much both, you know, privately in our chats and sometimes on a podcast how kids are a real hit and miss with acting. Dude, mm. her reaction, little subtle things I'm going to give the kid credit for. The thing sure. with the pillow, I don't know if that was a direction or an actor's choice, but utterly brilliant. Yeah. I, I think you might be dying. <laughs> so good. Yeah. I just found it so odd that they did a Christmas episode knowing that it was not going to be released at Christmas. Um, so the timing of it felt very odd and off mm -hmm. to me, but the episode itself was wonderful. Um, one of the things that struck me in this episode, <clears throat> and it's such a small, really unimportant thing, um, and honestly, it's something that, that most people probably would have noticed or had it stand out to them before this point, is, is just how remarkably statuesque Rebecca Waddingham is. Oh, my God. She's like, you know, if she were a little bit younger, she'd have been on my list to play She-Hulk. Instead, they got this midget girl. But, she, like, she looks like Betty Gilpin. She reminds me of a just just an, an ever so softer, more feminine Brigitte Nielsen. Yeah. She, she's, she's tall. She has muscular definition. She has mm -hmm. broad shoulders, but she carries herself with, with such an elegance. Yeah, she looks like a bodybuilder with a lot of grace. Mm -hmm. And so, and this episode was where it really jumped out at me. Mm -hmm. um, but the interactions between her and Ted, I enjoy. Um, because typically, those are very short interactions on the show. They take place mm -hmm. in her office. They're a couple of minutes long, and then things move on. And occasionally, like in the first season, you get the scene in the pub where Ted's playing darts and you get some extended interaction between them and I always enjoy those extended interactions mm -hmm. uh, between those two characters. <clears throat> so it was nice to see those two roaming around. My my favorite part of this episode was seeing the players just continually pile into Higgins home. Um, yeah. and, and this was, I think this was the episode and it's a little hokey because it's a Christmas episode and it's easy to hit those notes in a holiday episode. Um, but I think this episode showed the heart of the show and, and the fact that like we talked about in season one with so many shows and movies and, and media outlets in, in today's world, this show's not afraid to give you the saccharine feel good moments. And, and it's, enjoyable it's pleasant it's fun to watch i also like the fact they break character tropes because higgins was kind of a toady in the first season and he gets mm -hmm. he throws a spine at the end but it was it's very easy and i think and i like a lot of shows do this his kind of character is always a punching bag and mm -hmm. is always sort of mealy mouth and spineless and here he's shown so much love by the team and appreciation mm -hmm. and really throughout the whole season he he becomes a much more interesting character who mm -hmm. seems like a and i think this is important 
he seems like a real person and not a and not a written fictional character. Yes. That's a very relatable guy. Which he I like. becomes three-dimensional. Yes, uh, which I approve of. The other thing I really like, going back to Roy and, and Phoebe, Roy Roy's approach, which I thought was interesting, he's like, we're going to walk around my posh neighborhood. One of these people has to be a dentist. <laughs> like, Oi, your mom a dentist? <laughs> no. I <laughs> they just walk off like yep <laughs> so good um it's just so funny to me uh all right um oh the other thing is look i um just this is a real quick thing and this this was one of those that struck a personal chord with me because i don't want to see people alone on christmas christmas mm. i know i know all the girls and some of the boys like halloween because you get to dress up in funny clothes and costumes and you know, there's, there's associations with witchery and whatnot and horror movies. And ugh. I like Christmas. It's wholesome. <laughs> Santa Claus. Um, how, very, how very Mick Foley of you. Anyway, <laughs> uh, people not watching on video don't know what I look like. I, I've been accused of being Mick Foley before. Um, especially when I was actually wearing his shirt once. True story. <laughs> anyway, uh, love Christmas. Love the holidays. Love Christmas music. And, you know. People know on here, you know, Dominic the Donkey, very popular. Um, the Weird Al Christmas music, very popular. Anyway, so, like, that was one of the things that jumped out at me was, like, I like th that it was a Christmas episode because I just like that holiday. But also, seeing Ted briefly alone on Christmas and sort of frustrated and, like, my family, I'm not with my family, like, that hurt my heart, mm -hmm. you know? And, 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 and here's the thing, and I, and I bring this up because I think people get very fixated on Everything they watch and listen to and experience should always bring them joy. And I don't necessarily believe that to be true. I think I think you can watch a show that makes you sad. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. I think a show that produces an emotion is should be the should be the um the goal. And so, you know, I was I had a moment where I was watching Ted and he sort of slumps in his chair and you know, he kind of misses with the toy dart, and he's just like, Well. My life is crap, you know, kind of a look. And then and then within moments later, Rebecca's like, get out here. You're coming with me. And you were talking before, and, I, and I'm not sure if this is what you were alluding to, but you almost get the sense that there's going to be something romantic between them two. Yeah. Um, which is not how this goes. But, well, but and there's, and, and we'll touch on it a little mm -hmm. later, but there's another really big hint that pushes you in that direction. So just to kind of close up that point in case people like, I don't get it. Seeing said be alone on Christmas was made, made me very sad for him and made me kind of emotional. And then seeing him saved by Rebecca and shown that he is loved made me feel really, really happy. And I wouldn't have had either emotion without that episode. So, you know, yeah. uh, Rainbow, episode five. Nate, in order to impress his parents on their anniversary, timidly tries to reserve a window seat at their favorite restaurant. But the hostess is set off the seat near the back. In the kitchen, in the basement, behind the door, in the dark, that says beware of the leopard. It's the way that that is the impression I got. Uh, Richmond continues to struggle in part because team Captain Isaac is overthinking and struggles to lead. Nate offers to speak to Isaac, but Ted instead reaches out to Roy. Roy takes Ted and Isaac to a soccer field near his childhood home to play a pickup match with some neighborhood footballers, reminding Isaac to have fun while playing. Isaac regains his joy for the game and dominates to Roy's delight. Afterward, Ted offers Roy a coaching job on Richmond, which Roy declines. Keely and Rebecca each teach Nate how to be more assertive and confident, allowing him to successfully seat his family at the window table. 
Rebecca becomes interested in her new match on Banter, a dating app co-owned by Keeley and sponsoring Richmond. While commenting on his soccer Saturday show, Roy watches a newly enthusiastic Isaac on the pitch and realizes he misses being involved with the game. He makes his way to Richmond Stadium where he joins Ted's coaching staff through the applause of Richmond supporters and Nate's chagrin. Loved, loved, loved this whole episode. Favorite episode of the season. By Roy, far. Roy saying to Ted, you had me at hello or whatever it was. You had me at coach. You had me at coach. Yeah. Like brilliant. So good. You can, the guy you said it before, like you hope the guy playing Roy um gets gets at least nominations, if not actually wins the damn trophy. This episode really shows like his range as an actor. Because mm-hmm. they don't his character doesn't have a tremendous amount of range. But you know, I I I pay special attention to be able to, as you mentioned before, acting with your face. And when he sees Isaac playing and he has that moment of we're just he had he first he has like the that speech about all we do is guess at what they're gonna do, and then we complain they didn't do what we thought they were gonna do. This is mm-hmm. bullshit. Time is a flat circle, nothing matters. I'm out of here. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but it's brilliant, and his and it, and even if he said nothing and he just got up and left, the acting with his face was so good it really drew me into the performance. Mm-hmm. No, I, I enjoyed the scene with Roy and Ted in the kebab shop. Mm-hmm. Um, I enjoyed you know him watching Isaac and mm-hmm. you know Isaac saying, "Well, I'm a professional. I'm going to dominate them." And Roy's like, oh, "Okay," <laughs> and, and you know seeing him actually emote a little bit and plus the way they just effortlessly weaved a number of very iconic romantic comedy quotes throughout the episode just brilliant um but i did i enjoyed the entire episode i thought it was paced incredibly well they they managed to keep multiple storylines moving along at a, a pretty solid pace and this was where I felt like we really got into gear. Like we yeah. had been warming up through the first four episodes. Uh, we had seen a little bit of development. Things had started to progress. And I, f- I feel like season five was the end of the prologue. Mm-hmm. And season five is where the season actually, be- or episode five is where the season actually begins. Yeah, I totally agree with that. Um, and it's funny, going back to what you said before about you don't realize what they've done until you've watched the whole thing and you go back and you go, oh, memento. Got it. Mm-hmm. Um, seeing what happens with Nate by the end of the season, especially mm-hmm. like the kind of penultimate moment where he spits at the mirror. Mm-hmm. And you're like, it all starts with with Roy coming back, which is a great, which is great for the team and great for Roy. And, and, and such a wonderful moment between him and Ted. And it utterly shatters Nate. And see, I don't, I don't know that it starts with that. I don't know mm-hmm. that Roy starts it. I feel like in this episode, I feel like you could play like a soft version of the Imperial March behind everything that Nate does, um, because you've just got that sense of foreboding. And for me, that began in episode one. Like, okay. like from episode one, I thought, are they, are they really going to go this route with Nate? Because it just, it just felt like where things were headed. Okay. And when when Ted brings Roy in, it feels like the Jedi Council saying, "We do not bestow upon you the rank of Jedi Master." Yeah, like it, it's just okay. Here's here's our origin story. Yeah, and they do a really good job of giving that story some rope, and then they pull it back in. 
will he, won't he, will he, won't he? Uh, because there are moments where Nate very much embraces that aggressive character where he wants the credit. And then there are moments where you see him revert to being Nate. Yeah. And, and this episode, even though they have dropped hints, or I felt like they were through the first few episodes, this is where you really start to see that change in Nate start to happen. I laughed hard at two things about Nate in this episode that struck me. One is I laughed hard when he finally asserts himself and they give him the table. He gets what he wants. Mm-hmm. And you're like, oh, look at me. You know, what a man I am. And it's like, and then give me your number. And she's like, no, I have standards. Yeah. And, I, you know, and they're never they're always careful enough not to go too far with any one character. Yeah. Into into self parody. Um, the other thing, and I think this is the mark of a really brilliantly written television show, is that just because someone's the bad guy doesn't mean they're completely unsympathetic. Look at sure. his father. Like, yep. you can't help, even though Nate, Nate does shitty things and acts in a very shitty way by the end of the season, you can't help but feel bad. It's kind of like Jamie in the first season. When you suddenly yeah. realize what his father's doing to him, like, oh, well, Jamie is shitty, but now you can at least see why, and I'm sympathetic towards him. Mm-hmm. And that's what happens with Nate this season. Yep. And, and uh, much like with Jamie, Ted fills that father mm-hmm. figure role for Nate, and it plays out very differently. So Yeah, for sure. Uh, episode six, the signal. <laughs> this is this is great. Another great royal moment. What's going to be the signal? You'll know it when you see it. Um, with Roy Kent on the coaching staff, AFC Richmond is on a hot streak. Coach Beard is back with Jane, which worries Higgins, who is advised by Ted and Nate against telling him. Jamie is upset that Roy refuse uh, refuses to give him coaching advice. Roy relents and tells Jamie he needs to occasionally bring forth his brash and aggressive personality on the pitch. Rebecca seeing men from another dating site while continuing to fight, flirt with her mysterious banter match gets a visit from her mother, who just left her father. At lunch with her mother, Rebecca tells Ted and Keeley that her parents separate every few years, only to quickly reconcile. While in a close game against Tottenham, Tottenham Hotspur in the quarterfinal of the FA Cup, all four coaches give Jamie the signal to play selfishly, raising their middle finger at him, <laughs> leading to a goal from Jamie. Ted has a panic attack and leaves the pitch with, with Richmond in disarray Spurs score. Without Ted, Nate steps in and calls a triple substitution that leads to a game-winning score for Richmond. Rebecca look, looks for Ted in the locker room but cannot find him. Uh, Rebecca's banter match is revealed to be Sam. Higgins tells Beard his concern. Beard is appreciative and embraces him, but still leaves with Jane. As Dr. Sharon goes to her office, she finds Ted waiting and asks for help. Um... The, the bit where Roy says to Ted, yeah, I know what's wrong with him. You fucking ruined him. That's what's wrong with him. <laughs> and Ted's yeah. like, huh, <laughs> I'm listening. <laughs> it's so good. Yeah. And, and it's so right. It's just like Jamie so wants to be accepted by the family he found that he's mm-hmm. going to do the, all the right things. But sometimes the right thing is the wrong thing. Mm-hmm. And that's the point that Ray, that Roy is trying to make, that there are times, and he, and he outright says this, when it's appropriate, you need to be the best shining star on the team and be laps ahead of everybody else because yeah. that's what you do. And that's when it, and that's when it's needed. But the rest of the time, you need to put your dick back in your pants, sir. Um, you just can't be swinging it around all the time. <laughs> and Jamie's like, right, got it. Um, so that's all. that was all really well done. Um, the other... Th- we get a little bit more of Nate. That's all. That's you know. That's all set up for Nate to finally, you know, uh, come out at the end of the season the way that he does, which we'll talk about. 
But um, yeah, Ted, Ted and his panic attacks. I'm going to, this is both good and bad for me because I feel like it took forever to get anywhere with Ted. Like this is two episodes longer than previous season. And I think I wanted them to get a little bit more into Ted's um, mentality, his, his psychology a little bit sooner, but that just might be a personal thing for me. Like I was really anxious to see what was the cause of his panic attacks and mm -hmm. what's, what's going on with him psychologically. And I just couldn't wait. And they were drawing it out and drawing it out and drawing it out. And like the next episode or two where he's hot and cold with Sharon, boy, was that familiar to me. I've had those things <laughs> said to me. So I, I was I was definitely both empathetic and sympathetic. But it was like, all right, like, get there already. Let's let's finish already. Like, stop, stop dragging this out. Yeah, I, I enjoyed this episode. This is the episode where I felt like they dropped the other big hint that Mm -hmm. uh, Ted and his boss were romantically involved because you see her typing and texting away and then it immediately cuts to a scene of Ted walking, looking down at his phone and grinning and then he just tucks mm -hmm. his phone into his pocket. And, and it was very deliberately placed so that you got the impression that Ted was talking to her. And then later in the episode, they they give you the, the swerve and they show you <laughs> who she's actually talking to. Um, the relationship between she and Sam is really the one point of contention that I have with this episode or with this season as a whole. <clears throat> and I, I'm willing to, to wait and see how things play out in season three and how they eventually do resolve the storyline because it's not complete. Right. Um, it just, it's the one thing in, in the, in the arc of all of the characters. Now there's another episode we'll get to where I have a bone to pick with a, a particular event, but as far as characters, it feels very forced, very outside the realm of reality. Um, it just, it did not click with me whatsoever. Um, and they did a good job of playing into it and sort of the emotional turmoil that that sort of relationship would cause. I just don't see it really progressing after the initial discovery. Um, it just did not ring true to me. Um, but the, the episode as a whole uh, mm -hmm. was fine. Um, I do wish they would have dipped back into that part of Jamie's persona at least one more time throughout the season instead of yeah. just leaving it in this episode. Um, I feel like that would have been an, an effective way to call back to sort of the middle of the season stuff had they been in another game where they give Jamie the signal and he does his thing and maybe it doesn't work the second time or whatever. Right. Um, I wish they would have dipped back into that uh, a little more. I would Later say they really the minimize. They really after one, once Jamie comes back and he has this moment, they really minimize him outside of the one episode with his dad, mm -hmm. um, which he was such a such a big part of the first season. I was really shocked that he got less screen time in this in this season mm -hmm. than before. But it's fine because it's not like they replaced him with stuff I wasn't interested in. Um, I want to just bring this up really quick. This is more of a general comment, but it's emblematic of stuff that happens with Rebecca in um, in this season. And I and I just also got finished watching the first season of You, which I'm going to talk about tomorrow night with Jason Teasley. Have you watched You at all? Uh, I'm familiar with the concept, but I haven't watched. Is there anything less interesting in the medium of television and film than watching people play with their phones or seeing things on a phone displayed on screen? I fucking hate the world we live in. <laughs> I hate the 21st century. I I demand we go back to ink ink pens and you know, feather pens and quills and and parchment. 
because it was at least has it at least has dramatic flair to it. Watching a character do this shit here, you know. Okay, so people not watch people who are later listening to this on audio only. I just waved my phone around in front of the camera. There's so much of Rebecca playing with her phone because she's doing banter, and I understand. Like, well, how, how else the what, what the fuck was she gonna do? Did you really want her to be at a you know a lacquered wooden table writing <laughs> you know writing the sand? Yes, yeah, I, yes, I agree. It would have been better for me, but not realistic. I just I hate that that's what we're forced into because that's the reality of people's lives now. Yeah, agreed. It's thoroughly uninteresting to look at. Um, I'll tell you. You know, if you're going to write a letter, uh, and with such a forced promo, um, <laughs> if you're going to write a letter to somebody using an ink pen, you know, or whatever, uh, parchment, quill, that sort of thing, um, you might want to use Grammarly because <laughs> Grammarly's AI powered products help people communicate more effectively. I don't really know how I'm now going to connect something on that you do on a computer to my assertion that you should use a quill and parchment, but go with it. Grammarly might help you still write mistake-free on Gmail, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and nearly anywhere else you write on the web. Grammarly corrects hundreds of grammar, punctuation, and spelling mistakes while also catching contextual errors, improving your vocabulary, and suggesting style improvements. Let me tell you, I have, I, I've been on chats with you and everybody else, and you'll see occasionally the thing that I do most often is I forget a word. So, like, this is an entire word missing in whatever sentence I've typed. I hate that I do that. And if I had only used Grammarly, it would help me say, hey, stupid, you forgot where in that sentence. You forgot then. You forgot that sort of thing. So click the link in our description here of this podcast, getgrammarly.com slash W2M network. Again, it's getgrammarly.com slash W2M network to download Grammarly for free. And then you won't be like me and leave words out of your text, utterly confusing the people you're arguing about Ric Flair over. Um, that was for you, buddy. Appreciate it. <laughs> Episode 7, Head Space. Ted's first two sessions with Sharon prove fruitless. He leaves the first almost immediately and storms out of the second after expressing his skepticism and contempt towards psychotherapy like you do. During the third visit, however, Ted apologizes for his outburst and decides to commit to the therapy process. Roy unwittingly begins spending every moment he can with Keeley to the point where she feels smothered. The two fight after Roy learns that Keeley has been complaining about his overbearing behavior to Rebecca and others. <laughs> that is a true fight that I've had with special someone. Thanks to Jamie, Roy later comes to understand that Keeley needs space and makes amends by running her a candlelit rose bath to enjoy alone in their home. Nate sees himself going viral on Twitter for the triple substitution that resulted in Richmond's recent win, but his insecurity worsens when his stern father advises humility instead of praising his achievement. As a result, Nate begins behaving cruelly to others in the locker room. First to Colin, a young Welsh player who used to bully him, and later to Will, the new kit man. So, yeah, I'll just say this and let you have the lion's share of this of this space now. Um, I had to, like, tell my wife once, like, I, I do not abide by you telling everybody else what the issue with us is and not telling me and making me have to guess. <laughs> How about you talk to me and not tell your girlfriend what shitty thing I did? And maybe I'll have a hopes of correcting it. Boy, did that resonate with me. I think we can all relate to that. I enjoyed, again, the little things that this show does. Um, you know, Ted would go in and, and, and he would hit the little 
perpetual motion machine that set the bird mm-hmm. rocking back and forth. And, and when the bird stopped, so did Ted. Mm-hmm. And the doc took notice of that. And, and she flipped it on Ted. A- mm-hmm. And when the bird wasn't moving until Ted got there, uh, he opened up and, and it was a nice, it was a nice way to show that she was paying attention. She picked up on details. She was actually really good at her job. Yes. Um, I think the thing that got me and it's, it's one of the things that has got the wheels turning in my head as far as where are we going in future seasons with the character of Ted he said, I don't quit things. And I, I feel like it's fairly obvious that, that we're coming to a point where Ted is going to have to be forced to choose. Are you going to quit having a full-time relationship with your son, or are you going to quit being the coach of a soccer team halfway around the world? Um, that, that feels like the arc that Ted is on. Mm-hmm. Um, and they made such a point that I don't quit things. That's, an, I, that's not what I do. Um, and then we dig into the reasons why Ted doesn't quit things and you know, we'll, we'll get into all of that. Um, but seeing, seeing some develop, some further development from Ted at this point in the season was nice. Um, and again, you can hear that dun, 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 <laughs> with pretty much everything that Nate does. Um, and, and scrolling through Twitter, he sees the praise, he sees the praise and he smiles and he takes it all in. And he finds the one tweet that says, yeah, but he still looks like a loser. And he fixates on it right? because he's still Nate. He still doesn't have the approval of his father. He still feels like he's being overlooked on the coaching staff. And so all the praise in the world isn't getting him the recognition from the two people that he wants it from the most. Um, and and it, it begins to bubble. And again, we, we see the path that Nate's on. Um, but it was a well done episode. And I feel like, again, we're into the meat and potatoes of the season. Now we're mm-hmm. getting real development for everyone. Um, the Roy and Keeley stuff was fantastic. Uh, when, when he's talking to Jamie and he figures out what he, through Jamie's explanation of soccer, he figures out what he's done wrong in the relationship and he just walks off. It's, it's so good. That's, it's such a great team. It's one of the best scenes of the season like that that explanation from jamie working on two levels mm-hmm. it being you know metaphorical and all of that that's great you know yeah. I, I don't know how many passes through editing these scripts go i don't know how much time there is talking around the table before they commit pen to paper you know or quill to parchment but um <laughs> but uh i i mean the, i i would love to have been just a fly on the wall as they constructed that scene mm-hmm you know, and, and committed it to paper because it's really, it's, it's truly brilliant. And I, and I have to say, cause I, I haven't really said it much this, this talk, but um, I'm, what is the word the kids use these days? Shipping. I'm shipping Keely and Roy. They're an adorable <laughs> couple. They just light up the screen. Like I am like, I don't root for many couples on television because I don't watch a lot of things with couples on television. But I, I want, I just, I want to be at their wedding. I, I want them to have a dozen children. I love Roy and Keely together. And when there was the possibility of them breaking up, like it's not, I, it's not the sort of thing that moves me in any, in any kind of fiction. But like I would have been heartbroken. <laughs> I'll tell you, um, my friend and I years ago we saw, uh, I think it was Goodwill Hunting in the theater. And, you know, the scene where Matt Damon breaks up with Minnie Driver, my friend and I are just like, you know, two grown men. 
you know, burly grown men. <laughs> oh, Minnie, no! How could you? Like, we both, like, just swearing our love to Minnie Driver. Like, we'll, we'll take you, Minnie. <laughs> Screw you, Matt Damon. Uh, I also love the fact that Roy just yells whistle instead of blowing a whistle. <laughs> it's a very Roy it's, thing to do. Yes. Love it. It's a very me thing to do. <laughs> Have you coached many children and just yelled whistle at them? Um, not so much coached, but supervised. Sure. You do you do work with children through your ministry. I remember that. Man City. Sharon suffers a concussion after being hit by a car while biking with just the goofiest smile on her face. Ted brings her home from the hospital and sees a number of empty wine and spirit bottles. Rebecca and Sam anonymously arrange a dinner date and find that upon arriving at the restaurant that they are each each other's banter matches. Rebecca is initially apprehensive, but Sam convinces her to have dinner with him platonically, while they both, uh, which they both enjoy. The two kiss when they return to Rebecca's house, but agree not to escalate their relationship further. Roy is called into Phoebe's school and realizes that swearing is having an effect on her. <laughs> Richmond plays the Wembley Stadium for the first time against Manchester City, but suffers a harsh loss. After the game, Jamie is bullied over the loss by his abusive father. James in the locker room in front of his teammates and coaches. Jamie finally retaliates and punches his father dead up in the face whom Beard escorts out. Roy embraces Jamie, who breaks down crying in his arms. The team shakes shed, uh, The team shakes Ted into calling Sharon and confessing that his father committed suicide when Ted was 16. Rebecca and Sam ultimately spend the night together. So yeah, this is the first time besides like the bit of the Christmas one where like in the Christmas one, I just kind of teared up slightly and it was like, oh, can't be seen crying. Um, this one, I was like, my just face just fell off. Between the Roy... Between the Roy um, Jamie hug in the locker room, mm -hmm. you know, that sort of silent acknowledgement of whatever we've had, I'm still your brother and I love you, you know, and then followed up by Ted's like, my father committed suicide and everyone's left me and that's why I'm the way that I am. And I'm like, well, <laughs> and that was the end of me. <laughs> yeah, the, the Roy and Jamie embrace that was the one moment this season that probably got me the most. And I don't really have an explanation for it mm -hmm. um, because I had a wonderful relationship with my father. I never had to deal with any of the things that, that Jamie had to deal with. My father was just uh, abundantly overwhelmingly supportive of everything that I ever wanted to do. Um, so it's not something that I had to deal with, thankfully. Um, but it really felt like as much of a resolution as there would ever be between Jamie and Roy, because it was like, it clicked with Roy. Oh, mm -hmm. That, that's why he is the way that he is. And, and to see pity mm -hmm. from Roy and, and to see him be the one when everyone else is stunned in this horribly awkward situation. I mean, you just watched a, a kid get humiliated by his father to the point that he punched his father in the face. I mean, how do you respond to that? Right. Um, for Roy to be the one that, that breaks that moment of awkwardness and to go over to embrace Jamie and to see that outpouring of emotion from Jamie, um, that, that one got me, that one made the eyes sting a little bit. Um, so that, and then I, the stuff with Ted didn't resonate with me quite as much. However, again, it's not something that I've ever had to deal with. It's not something that 
I can relate to in terms of a relationship with my father, but mm. Jason Sudeikis takes a lot of knocks for his performances in, in various vehicles. And, and some of them are, are fairly well-deserved. He's, he's been in some stuff that really wasn't very good. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think in Ted Lasso, he's proven that he is a more than capable dramatic and comedic actor. And this scene really shows that, that he can play those, those roles with depth, with humanity, with, something that is grounded in reality and he's not just a huckster that spits out corn pone sayings and and catchy witticisms he can bring some real depth to the character i don't know if it's a commentary on the modern state of comedy in film and television or if it's just something about me but i am i am i love when they're a comedian breaks through their drama cocoon you know robin williams who's known for his like cocaine riddled comedy but his dramas were outstanding, mm-hmm. you know, and then his kind of successor, Jim Carrey, mm-hmm. you know, who was known for doing silly things on in living color and then does the Truman show. And, um, Oh gosh, what's the movie theater one? Uh, Eternal remember. sunshine. No, but that's another good one. No, the one, the one with the movie theater. Uh, Oh, I can't think of the name of it, but I know, you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. You know, or Will Ferrell when he was in the Lifetime movie. Uh, yeah, I think Will Ferrell um, has had some drama kakumos. So another one that I was thinking of was Adam Sandler, mm-hmm. whose comedies outside of like The Waterboy and The Longest Yard I typically hate. Um, <laughs> it's just a big bone of contention between my wife and I, who loves his comedies. Uh, but I generally hate Adam Sandler's comedies, but his dramas are so good, and he's such mm-hmm. a great dramatic actor. And so, you know, and Jason Sudeikis falls right into that. Where you're like, holy crap! Like when he mm-hmm. has to be dr- dramatic, he nails it every every time. Um, the, I, for me, it wasn't like, and and we don't need to talk too much about you know fathers and relationships. But in either case, like I said, my father's still alive, right? Um, and and that's not what I was keying into. Sure. I think, um, I think the acknowledgement that with all the shitty things between Roy and Jamie, that they could get past it and just acknowledge that they are brothers. You know, and and that they love each other. I think that's what I connected with. Mm. Um, that sometimes we put we set aside the bullshit to just acknowledge somebody in the, in in their life and say, "I'm here for you." Mm. That you know, it's when I was like when I was talking about Cat, um, Falcon and the Winter Soldier. You know, there are just some certain themes that resonate with me. Things that I believe in. You know, um, you know, we can do better. As stupid as a sentence as it was said in the show, I at least I I resonated with the the theme of that. Um, or the theme of that resonated with me. And then, you know, Ted talking about his father abandoning him again. I don't have those specific issues, but hearing somebody talk about that, like that tugs on my heartstrings. I genuinely feel bad for those people. Yeah. And I want better for them. I want them to have family. I want them to be loved. Um, the other thing I just wanted to bring up real quick, the, the Wembley stadium speech was hilarious to me. Oh, it was beautiful. <laughs> Because they tried to do the Hoosiers thing where right. this rim is 10 feet high. This mm-hmm. court is 83 feet long and 55 <laughs> feet wide. No, it's not. Yeah. If, if they <laughs> it's didn't much larger, Coach. If, if, they, if they ever wanted to rename the show something other than Ted Lasso, like, kind of like a Roseanne thing, you know, they have to kick Jenkins and Dacus off the show, but they want to keep it. Call it taking the piss out of everything. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. <laughs> so funny. Um, beard after hours. Oh, this fucking this was the Homer trip out show. <laughs> oh, the Homer trip out episode of this season. Holy cow, this was this was missing everything but peyote. Um the night of Richmond's loss against Manchester City, a dispirited coach beard returns to his apartment. He visits a pub and is joined by avid Richmond supporters Baz, Jeremy, and Paul. After the pub closes, the four sneak into an exclusive basement club, but Beard rips his pants and is thrown out. He accompanies Mary, a woman from the club, back to her apartment to fix his pants, but is forced to flee from Mary's hulking boyfriend, Darren. Beard is soon cornered in the street and beaten by James Tart, Jamie's father, and his friends. Darren saves him, having followed him to return Beard's wallet and phone. Beard is horrified to find a string of angry texts from Jane, with whom he is still in love. Beard is brought home by Baz, Jeremy, and Paul, who had hired a limo with the money they won at the private club. He thanks them for the ride by giving them the address of his secret entrance to Richmond's home stadium. After his apartment key breaks in the lock, Beard stumbles across a secret nightclub in the basement of a church Jane previously claimed to be. He meets Jane and enjoys a night of music and dance. The following morning, a sleep-deprived Beard returns to work as usual with his coaches. Take it away, Gavin, because other than comparing him to Homer Simpson in the, in the Homer <laughs> trip-out episode... I got nothing. In many ways, I felt like this episode was long overdue to give mm -hmm. us some real development with Coach Beard, who is a fascinating character in large <laughs> part because we didn't have any information on him. Um, he's played so well. Mm -hmm. um, it, I, I enjoyed the character tremendously, and I enjoyed this episode because it felt true to what his personality has been in, in short glimpses throughout the series. And even at the ending of the previous episode, when uh, when Ted Lasso tells him, hey, be safe, he indicates that he knows what this has potential to become for Coach Beard. Um, and, and he lives up to it. Mm -hmm. But the the one moment that I found just too hokey and, and too unbelievable uh, was when the muscle-bound boyfriend rescues him in the sewers of London. Uh, it just, it felt just a little too convenient, yeah. too tropish, too... Deus ex thuggery. Yeah. And, <laughs> and yeah, it made for a nice moment. The conversation was fine. And the whole mm -hmm. thing where he kept dropping his key and then the key breaks. Yeah, it's fine. Like, I just, it didn't ruin the episode for me. I just thought, ah, it's a little much, guys. Um, I do think it's interesting that everyone was so against Coach Beard and Jane getting back together. Mm -hmm. uh, he acknowledged himself on some level, non-verbally, that she did not make him a better person, um, that he did not particularly like who he was, that he was frustrated by his relationship with her and her possessiveness and her jealousy and her erratic behavior and hanging out with underwear models. All of those things seem to frustrate him. And then they have this moment of reconciliation after this terrible night that he had. And it's just, oh, okay, well, they're together now. Everything's fine. It, it felt a little off to me. Um, but I did enjoy those fabulous pants. <laughs> so, yeah, I wish I knew a little bit more about what his major malfunction is, that he's so broken that he keeps going back to this woman. Mm-hmm. And I don't have enough of what's wrong with this woman to know why she's so bad for him. Like the, the I, I feel like the stuff with um the stuff with him and Jane was very underdeveloped. 
the <laughs> point where like i think that's why this episode doesn't doesn't really work for me like i totally get what you're saying with regards to um with regards to like he you know we need to see an episode of like a day in the life of of coach beard um to get some you know to get to get some more insight into his personality and all of that but it feels like they did it without setting it up at all in any way um because so much of it revolves around his relationship with jane mm -hmm. like if he's just going if it's about like him just kind of getting into trouble because he needs to blow off steam because they lost a big a big match that's one thing and I, and it's fine and the episode plays out as it should but the fact that so much of it revolves around whether or not he's going to be with this woman that I'm not invested in and I'm not invested in that relationship. They don't do enough with it. I agree. I agree. Um, but I like the beginning of the episode. Uh, enjoyed his interaction with the, the three lads from the bar. Um, yes. That was a, that was a nice note. Um, and enjoyed the ending. Uh, and again, even in, an episode that is entirely devoted to Coach Beard, you still get a little bit of a hint of that growing darkness in Nate at the end of the episode. Oh, yeah. Every episode, a little bit more, a little bit harder, a little, a little bit more, a little bit harder. It's it's like, it's all just building. It's, yep. it's This is, we are getting very, very, very close to Nate kicking Ted Lasso through the barbershop window. <laughs> yep. Um, okay. Uh, no weddings and a funeral. <laughs> Great some, title. Best title of the season. Some, some amazing titles here. Uh, Rebecca and Sam continue their relationship in secret for several weeks. One morning, Rebecca's mother informs her that her father has died. The entire Richmond team attends the funeral, but Ted has a panic attack and calls Sharon for a therapy session. Rupert and Bex come to the funeral uninvited with their newborn daughter, infuriating Rebecca. Keely and Sassy deduce that Rebecca is secretly in a relationship, and Keely correctly guesses it's it's with Sam. Rebecca tells her mother she does not want to eulogize her father as she watched him cheat on her as a child, but her mother reveals she knew and loved him despite his imperfections. This is very much like the crown. <laughs> Jesus Christ. At the same time, Ted describes his father's death to Sharon for the first time and arrives late for the funeral. Instead of giving a traditional eulogy, Rebecca leads the mourners in singing Never Gonna Give You Up, a song that parents continue to like and find meaningful. After the service, Jamie admits to Keeley that he loves her. Rupert tells Rebecca he will give her the remaining shares of Richmond and briefly converses with Nate. Dun, dun, dun. Rebecca ends her relationship with Sam, fearing heartbreak, but grows closer to her mother. Not going to lie, I don't remember what I was doing during this episode, but I don't remember a tremendous amount of it. It's worth rewatching because in, in that entire synopsis, mm -hmm. it, it leaves out my two favorite parts of the episode. Um, one, uh, again, actual emotional and psychological development on the part of Roy, um, mm -hmm. as he confronts and admits his feelings about how death makes him uncomfortable and why. And to me, the funniest moment of the season, Danny Rojas saying that when he will get home, he will take these shoes off and burn them and their memory can burn in hell forever <laughs> because Danny Rojas does not like to wear shoes. <laughs> I vaguely remember that. That's amazing. I, it's worth rewatching because his mm -hmm. the young man's performance is tremendous. He looks like he is in absolute misery every second that he is wearing dress shoes. Um, <laughs> and there's a really uh, the conversation between Rebecca and her mother when her mother tells her, "I knew 
And she says, then I hate you too. Um, the conversation and the dialogue there is really, really well done. It doesn't feel hokey. It doesn't feel over-dramatized. It, it doesn't, it doesn't feel off at all. Yeah. Um, it feels like a very raw conversation that would be had in that moment and in that setting. Um, so uh, I don't know that there's a lot of great stuff in this episode. Mm -hmm. Um, and this is one of those episodes where Nate just goes back to being Nate and he's awkward and sort of likable. And, you know, he, he's not asserting himself and being this weirdly rude antagonistic person. Um, he just is who he is. Yeah. Um, so I, I liked this episode, but I don't know that it's, you know, one of the cornerstones of, of the season. I might give it a rewatch because I know I missed Ted talking specifically about his father's death. And it's something I think I need to, I want to hear for myself. But there's other points that you're bringing up, I think are worth rewatching it too. So, and I now remember what I was doing. I was watching it in bed and passed out. So. Ah, well. <laughs> yeah, I think, I think you'll really enjoy the Roy stuff. Okay. Episode 11, we're almost done here. Sam scores the first hat trick of his career. Um, Ghanaian billionaire Edwin Akufo. The actor playing him is so funny. He's oh, fantastic here. Tremendous. Visits Richmond and informs Rebecca that he wants to buy Sam as a player. Uh, Akufo elaborates to Sam that he wants to buy Raja Casablanca and sign an ensemble of Africa's most talented players, predicting that an African team will win the FIFA World Cup within 20 years. Sam is given three days to consider the offer, though Rebecca pleads with him not to go. Nate continues to feel the frustration of receiving little credit for developing the team's tactics. While trying on new suits, he impulsively kisses Keeley. During Roy and Keeley's photo shoot for the latter's magazine profile, Keeley admits Nate's kiss and Jamie's confession of love at the funeral, and Roy tells her he spent three hours with Phoebe's teacher. Both are left shaken. Ted learns that Sharon left before her last day and tracks her down to give her the team's parting gift. Later, Ted receives a text message from Trent Krim, tipping him off about a forthcoming article on Ted's match day panic attack and that Nate was the anonymous source. Yeah, I um I got the sneaking suspicion Roy was going to end up with the teacher, which would have broke my heart. Although they're they're cute together too, you know they had some nice sexual chemistry between them. But I was also like, I don't, but I don't want that, you know. Right. And then you see what happens to Keely in the next episode. You're like, Jesus Christ, what is happening with these two people? You know, we we built up this one, we built up this wonderfully intricate sandcastle. It's a thing of beauty. We're just going to kick it, you know? Yeah. What the hell, man? Um. Nothing. Nobody can ever have happiness in television. Um, the stuff with uh, with Ted and Sharon was was also adorable, and you know Ted latching on to. I saw Ted differently in this episode because because he really just latches on to Sharon, mm -hmm. and you what you realize about Ted is because of his abandonment issues, his tendency to latch on to people and to try to be their everything, to create a sense of need and want. And not in a sexual way, in, in right. a very general way, because he does not want, he wants to fill his life with people so that he always feels comfortable and secure. Um, I, I, I think that's an interesting way to portray this character, especially now, you know, as sort of this is national conversation of what is masculinity? What is toxic masculinity? Is toxic masculinity a thing? You know, and then, okay, now that we've established all that, what do we do about men's mental health? Yeah. And 
that is something that really resonated with me this season in general, but with Ted specifically, is the is the writer saying, hey, men's mental health is a thing and it shouldn't be ignored, nor should it be considered uh, feminine or, you know, non-masculine. So I with with also without beating you over the head with a frying pan about it. Yeah. And this is the episode where it's confirmed, okay, Nate's the bad guy now. Yeah. Um, yeah, that I was surprised that they were that deliberate with it. Mm-hmm. I thought that was a wonderful way to reveal it um, because we hadn't seen anything from Trent Krim, the independent, mm-hmm. uh, this season. And, and he's, he's one of those side characters that I enjoy. Mm-hmm. Um, and his relationship with Ted's unique. Um, he had that really nice, uh, episode with Ted where he was the first person to really give Ted a chance and they went to the Indian restaurant and so on. Mm-hmm. We talked about that in season one. Um, I, I really like his character and I like the dynamic there. Um, and the fact that a reporter revealed their source to the subject of a story um, is not something to take lightly in the world of journalism. That's just no. that's not something that you do and it has consequences. It, it, it lays groundwork for season three. Um, this episode in general, I think, does give a lot of insight into Ted and his abandonment issues. I enjoyed the dynamic between the two of them um, right up to the very end where Ted ditches her at the bar and leaves her with a, a glass full of beer with an army man in it. Mm-hmm. Um, I enjoyed that little callback to season one. Um, it shows that the writers are, in fact, paying attention. Um, which is always nice when writers do that. I, I like it when they remember things that they wrote and continue to use them. Yeah, um, it's it's quickly becoming an almost lost art. So kudos. Um, Such to the point, there's an entire niche industry, cottage industry of YouTube creators creating content, dissecting things, specifically pointing out that people do not abide by their own continuity. Yeah, I'm talking about pitch meeting. So the fact that the fact that he dropped the army man in the glass for her, mm-hmm. uh, that was a nice touch. I enjoyed that. Yeah. Um, overall, uh, a really well done episode. Um, some some nice heartfelt moments and a really nice penultimate episode where you just you can sort of take a breath. You can enjoy what's happening. And when Trent Krim texts Ted and says the source was Nate. Mm-hmm. That sort of lets you know where you're going to end the season up. Yeah. All right. So let's get to it. Uh, last one. Inverting the pyramid of success. Ted receives the club's full support after the news of his panic attack. He focuses on the season's final match, which would determine Richmond's promotion to the Premier League. Keeley learns Banter's VC wants her wants to finance her own PR firm. While Keeley celebrates with an overjoyed Rebecca, they discover Rupert has bought West Ham United because, of course, he has an old ball. Also, by the way. Dun, dun, dun. Roy forgives Jamie and Nate for sharing their affections with Keeley, but worries she will leave him. At halftime during the match, Nate tries to abandon his false nine tactic, but the players elect to stick with it. Ted asks Nate why he's upset with him. Nate tearfully responds that Ted continuously neglected him since joining the coaching staff. Danny scores an equalizing penalty to secure Richard's promotion. The team and supporters celebrate, but Nate walks off dejected. Sam decides to stay at Richmond to a Kofu, a Kofu chagrin, telling Rebecca he wanted to benefit his own personal journey. Ted runs into Trent Krim, who was fired as a reporter after revealing his anonymous source. 
Roy tries to go on holiday with Keely, but an already overworked Keely encourages Roy to go himself. Sam leases a storefront to start a Nigerian restaurant. Two months later, Rupert greets the newest member of his West Ham coaching staff, which is Nate. So a couple of things, and I'll give you the final word on this episode. Um, the, uh, the Okofu's reaction to Nate not taking the job <laughs> is the funniest thing in this whole season. I will and, buy your childhood home. <laughs> just, I wonder, I have to wonder how much of that was ad lib. Because it's so, because him just like, I will shit, I will shit on your homeland. I will, <laughs> the whole thing, I'm dying laughing. And it's supposed to come across as like menacing, but it's so like over the top mm -hmm. absurd. And Sam's face, just his like non reaction sells the whole thing. Like, yeah. I'm not going to say anything. You seem like a lunatic. Yeah. I'll just choking, I'll... choking the headless mannequin was my favorite. <laughs> and falling over with it. Yes. Yeah. Like it, it was almost like your motivation here. Your and and here's the thing: his anger, not necessarily his execution of said anger, but his anger, feeling led on, and then ultimately to be turned down. I get it, especially if you're somebody who has so much money, people don't say no to you. So, like, see, that's interesting. It's, to it's me believable. That's not that's not how I took it. I took okay. it as just a petulant child that doesn't hear the word no. Okay. Um, because I don't feel like Sam led him on. Mm -hmm. I feel like he threw himself at Sam and Sam said, give me some time to make this decision. And he just mm -hmm. assumed that Sam would say yes, because that's what people say to rich people. Yes. And, and I'm, I'm not fully convinced. I believe Sam led him on it. I can see where a felt that way. Okay. That's fair. That's fair. Um, yeah, I, I'm, not committing one way or the other, you know, because of, because I can see it from both points of view. Where Sam's like, "You took me on this weird date. I went. I <laughs> now I need time to process." Yeah. And Akuf was going, "I took you on this weird date. We're now married. Let's go." You know. <laughs> um. So there's that. The Keely Roy thing really resonated hard with me. You know, the idea of like. You are a wonderful man and a wonderful human being, and I love you and I want to be with you. But Jesus Christ, I have a life, I have things I have to do by all means, go without me. Um, and there, there's a legitimate fear in that, you know. I'm lucky that I have a relationship with my own wife where I, I'm gonna go see last night in Soho tomorrow, and she's gonna take the kids to trunk or treat. You know, on Saturday, she's gonna go to Karen Bruder's football game college football penn state that's the one she's gonna you know go to the penn state game at, at you know at her friend's house and i'm gonna take my kid to go see my hero academia the movie wait till your son gets into anime gavin wait for it <laughs> <laughs> you know things like that like we do things as a family we do things as single individuals we do sure. things with just our kids and there's there's trust there um because we all need space you know, and we need time to pursue other things that are also important to us. And it doesn't make it less important. It just, you have to, you know, to, I'm not going to play this, the clip again, but, you, you know, to quote Bubbles in the Wire, you have to make room for other things too. And it's a lesson that Roy needed to learn over the course of this season, um, because clearly that's not something that he came to naturally, you know, and they got there without there having to be a big blow up, nasty, crying, snotty fight about it. Which I liked. I will. I will say though the what sort of felt like a post-credit scene for a Marvel movie between Keely and Roy. Um, 
you know, he asks her, are we breaking up? And she says, no, of course not. Mm -hmm. It still kind of feels like they are. Um, and, and I understand what you're saying about space and how that's sort of been the, the journey that they've taken over the course of the season. Mm -hmm. There's a little bit of difference in space and a six week vacation apart from each other. Um, that, that feels a little extreme and maybe I'm wrong in season three will prove me wrong. Mm -hmm. Um, but it certainly felt like his reaction to it and, and his dejection at something that he was so proud of putting together for the mm -hmm. two of them. It, it certainly felt like the dynamic of that relationship changed in that moment. Here's what I'm going to offer to you. I don't need you necessarily. You can if you want to. I certainly encourage you to. Um, but I, here's what I've experienced in my own life. My wife constantly reminding me that just because I've placed something in a, in, in a place of importance in my life doesn't lessen your importance to me. Sure. This woman was offered to start her own company. Right. I don't know if you've ever started a company. Takes a little bit of work. Sure. <laughs> you know? And I think no, that, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And that's what she's trying to get across to Roy. You're not any less important to me than you were, but there's this wonderful opportunity that's going to eat up all of my time. Going on vacation with you for six weeks isn't important to me right now. It might be right. in the future, but right now this is what I have to focus on. But that doesn't mean I don't want to be with you. There's room for both. No, I, I agree. And I don't think it'll be something so, so cut and dried as, mm -hmm. oh, well, this was the end of the relationship. It, it just certainly feels like that's something that they'll continue to build on in season three. I think he, here's where I'll agree with you. I think trust is going to become a major theme between Roy and Keeley and what is trust between people and how does that, you know, how does that work as a pillar of a relationship? And as I constantly remind my children, we don't have trust. We don't have anything. So I think that's, you know, I, I think, I think good writer, <clears throat> good writers can play with the theme of trust without, constantly breaking the furniture mm -hmm. so i look forward to see what they do with it in season three and i'm hoping they don't break the two of them up because i don't i don't think that sells the theme very well i think there's more you can do with them together but struggling than with just them you know him sleeping with the teacher and her you know doing whatever it is she does um anything else about the last episode oh we should probably duh we should probably talk about ted and nate probably um <laughs> You know, I, I have to say, I was really expecting them to reconcile at the end. I wasn't totally shocked that Nate ended up going to work for the opposing team um, because, you know, it does present conflict and drama that every good show should have. But I think I was overempathizing with Ted because Ted was expecting them to reconcile. Mm -hmm. Like, I think when he was just like, what did I do? And I am prepared to hear you tell me what I did wrong so I can mm -hmm. fix it. And Nate's like, I don't want, you know, yeah, you ever hear this, Gavin? I don't want you to fucking fix it. I just want to be mad at you right now. <laughs> I don't know if you've heard that before. Once or twice. <laughs> so, um, but you know, but not only does he say that, but then he goes and takes the next step of saying, fuck this, I'm done. Yeah. Um, great scene. D terrific scene. Um, and, and a really good job of building to it because you can sense Nate's overall frustration, the fact that yeah. they're down two nothing in halftime. It's everyone's fault but Nate's because Ted's in over his head. The players aren't executing. If they would just listen and do what Nate wants them to do, they would be fine. Um, and so Ted addresses it. Hey, you know, what's the problem? And you get a very heartfelt, very genuine apology from Ted mm -hmm. that 
what this show has given us through the first two seasons, those moments do lead to reconciliation. And the fact that it doesn't lead to reconciliation, I think, is a nice step forward. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it does create genuine conflict because now as we close season two, this doesn't feel like the type of situation that is salvageable like it did between Ted and Jamie. Yeah. Um, where Jamie went on to be a part of another team, but Ted reached out because he understood that Jamie was dealing with stuff. You know, Nate doesn't want Ted to reach out. Right. And the, the way that this show has created such attachment to small things, mm-hmm. seeing the believe sign ripped in half and left on Ted's desk, you're like, oh, you monster, how could you? Wow, yeah, totally. How how could you rip a piece of poster board in half? How dare you? <laughs> and, you know, as I told you in, in Messenger, the fact that Nate did not spit at the camera for the final shot. Mm-hmm. What, a, what a huge missed opportunity. I <laughs> um, also thought it was interesting. And, and maybe this means something. Maybe this was a, a directorial choice. I don't know. But I found it interesting that the more angry and evil Nate got, the more gray his hair got. God, by the end of it, he looked like Eric Bischoff. (laughs) The darker his suit got, the lighter his hair got. It's also like (laughs) the very Tobey Maguire Spider-Man thing. I'm evil. My hair does this now. You know? (laughs) So, like, he, because he's the whole first two seasons just about, he's got his hair kind of, kind of pushed mm-hmm. forward. And where my son wears his hair. And then, you know, now he's, now he's the, he's the HNIC. He's the main villain. He's, you know, he's Skeletor. And so his hair is, you know, artistly toofed. Yeah. Yep. He's got some jelly. He's got some, he's some, some, some sort of products going on. And he's got a nice salt and pepper, you know, and while it looked kind of drab, you know, kind of just dark and, you know, he looked more older than I think he really was. Now, like I said, he looked like when Eric Bischoff went gray, just let his hair be gray, how mm-hmm. shiny and silver it was. Like, ma, you silver fox. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's totally what he's going for. That I looked, I had to laugh hard. Like, I got what they were going for and it didn't feel necessarily like too over the top, like, like you've hit clown territory, but it was definitely like, I'm the villain. Look at me. Yeah. I'm, I'm wearing my villain costume. Yeah. You know, All black suit, but... gray hair, new hairstyle, smug look. Yep. Yeah. Everything but his skull and crossbones on his chest. Yeah. <laughs> and so now the the minor villain from the first season and, and the new villain from the second season have teamed up. So yep. anyway, season three should be very interesting. They've laid plenty of groundwork for what comes next. There's a lot of development in season two for them to capitalize on. Mm-hmm. Overall, I think season two more than lived up to expectations following a fantastic season one. And I'm excited for season three to roll around. Yep. And we'll do this again when it does. Um, I'll be curious. Depending on how season three goes, I'm not sure how many more seasons they can squeeze out of this. I'm, I I don't know about you. And this is the last thing I'll ask you. And then I, I'll let you go. I'll, I'll, I'll promise I'll release you. Um, <laughs> I... I'm liking the kind of where we are with television right now, where things don't go eight, nine, ten seasons. It's kind of three to five when we're done. You know, I like I, you know, almost like a like a like a movie trilogy, a three season television arc, and we're and we're out. Mm. 
feels better for me. And maybe that's just because I, I, I talk about so much stuff. I kind of just want things to end so I can move on to something else. Oh, God, please be over. I don't want to have to reschedule another one of these. Um, but I don't know. I don't know how you feel about it. I, uh, I, like, I, I like television shows ending earlier than later. It's, I think it depends on the IP. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think some things lend themselves to a never-ending story for lack of a better mm-hmm. term. Uh, I mean, you look at NCIS pushing 20 years. It, it's its core audience doesn't care how long it goes on. It's going to continue to endure, even though, you know, virtually every main character at this point has left the show and been replaced. It, it's still CBS's top rated show. Yeah. Um, and there's really no reason to end it because it, it's just a, a cop procedural that can go on forever and ever. Like Law and um, Order, which is on for 100 years. Yeah. Uh, and, and then on the flip side of that, you've got probably my favorite show of all time, Justified. Uh, they had a story to tell. They knew the beginning. They knew the ending. They knew the beats they wanted to hit along the way. And they weren't going to be persuaded to add to or extend that unnecessarily. Um, what happens when shows do that is you get the fourth and fifth seasons of Lost. Um, Damon Lindelof was very clear that the story that they had to tell with Lost was a four-season arc. That that was their intention. Start to finish, four seasons, in and out, done. The show became a mega hit. They were just given dump trucks full of money to create more content, so they mm-hmm. extended it. And in between what should have been the the third and fourth and final season, we get seasons four and seasons five, and then season six actually wraps things up. Um, and, and it's no shock that the quality of the two seasons that were never intended to be produced are drastically lower than every other season. Um, so I think there's value in knowing what type of property you have. Mm-hmm. Um, Ted Lasso does not feel like a property that can endure for 20 years at a high level of quality. Um, they have stories to tell with those characters. At some point, those character arcs will resolve themselves, and it will be time to move move on from this universe. Um, as unfortunate as that is to have to part ways with characters that you love and hold so dear after what does not feel like a very long time when so much dreck does go on forever and ever, um, I would rather see it end well than endure needlessly. Well said. All right, folks, if you've been enjoying Gavin and these two uh, TV parties where we talked about Ted Lasso, Gavin, who's been bitten by the podcast bug, asked me if he could be on their Spider-Man No Way Home review. And I said, yes, he took the fourth chair. That's right. All you podcast people out there. But those, <laughs> that's right. For those of you who are like, well, I want to be a Spider-Man on Spider-Man too. Well, fuck you. Gavin took your spot. How about that? So, um, Gavin will be on uh, December 21st to talk Spider-Man Your Way Home. Uh, whenever another season of this drops again, we will um, we'll do that. And also, I, I definitely, you pitched doing a Royal Rumble watch-along. I think you just the match itself, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we, we need to do that because that seems like a, like a shit ton of fun. And I know that's like one of your favorite Royal Rumbles ever. Yeah, it might be my favorite match ever. So I think it would be fun to do a watch along for that. Um, we'll do a live stream of it. You get to see Gavin throw his pants across the room when Ric Flair says, with a tear in my eye, this is the happiest moment of my life. <laughs> or something to that effect. So 
that's what we got going on there. Uh, as far as what uh, we got going on on the Rattledge and Broadcasting Network, I'll just wrap this up really quick. Um, this week was the march towards paranormal activity next of kin. So we dropped parts one and two of our long road to ruin from yesteryear of uh, paranormal activities. We covered the first four movies. We reviewed Crown Jewel, which did not suck. It's pretty good. It's even better when you don't watch Raw every week. Um, we reviewed uh, Donnie Darko for its 20th anniversary. Uh, Hollow, uh, we reviewed Dune 2021, Dune Part 1, as it's now being called. Um, Jesse has been, uh, on the march to Halloween, has been doing uh, a six-part series, which he's about halfway in the middle of now, uh, Rise of the Midnight Suns, like 22-minute episodes per day. Um, yesterday, we reviewed Halloween, the self-titled album that dropped in June. Today, we re-aired our reviews of Gem and the Holograms and <laughs> Paranormal Activity, The Ghost Dimension. It's a hell of a double feature. Um, tomorrow... Uh, we will be reviewing, uh, we're doing a triple feature, myself and Alexis, just in time for Halloween. We've got Scooby Meets Courage, Straight Out of Nowhere, Muppets Haunted Mansion, and My Little Pony, The Next Generation, Raw, Raw, We're an Angry Mob. And speaking of angry mobs, Jason Teasley will be joining us on a late night TV party tonight. We'll be discussing You Season 1, because he twisted my arm and made me. Um... We've got trivia for the month of October. This time we're focusing on horror movies. That's hosted by Alexis and Jesse. That's a lot of fun. And um, Robert Winfrey has an early UFC night, so I dragged him into boxing coverage. We're going to do the uh, ESPN Plus show, Jose Zapata versus Josue Vargas from Madison Square Garden. So that'll be fun to talk about. We'll do a live stream of that. Um, and then on Halloween... We've got Power Rangers on a Nightmare on Elm Street. That's Jesse and Alexis again. Uh, we've got a re-airing of our Trick or Treat reanimated review from the Metal Hammer of Doom. The last part of The Rise of the Midnight Suns and Spawn number nine in theory. I don't know if he's recording this or if he's dropping it. I don't know what he's doing. Jesse's a, Jesse's a mystery wrapped in a pickle wrapped in a conundrum. Um, so uh, next week, we've got... Eternals by Neil Gaiman, Last Night in Soho, Paranormal Activity, Next of Kin, Ministry, Moral Hygiene, and uh, Pat and I will review Dark Side of the Ring Season 3B. Before we go, anything you want to plug? Anything you want people to know about you? Where you there they can find you, if they can find you? Uh, you can, in theory, find me on Twitter at Gavin Napier TCH. That's, that's about it. I don't really, <laughs> I don't really do much of this stuff anymore. I've got a toddler and two full-time jobs. Wait, you can get the toddler on the podcast. It's even better. Uh, he's he's getting close to being able to speak intelligently. Uh, it's fun. Tell you, you know, do, do like I do. Do uh, do commentary tracks with children. It's fantastic. The insights, let me tell you. And on that note, thanks for coming along, Gavin. We'll talk to you soon. Uh, this has been TV Party Tonight. Be well, be safe, and behave. <laughs>